Chapter Thirty Three of the Drums of Jeopardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter Thirty Three. Her fingers seeming all thumbs, her heart swelling with misery and loneliness. Wanting to go to him, but fearing she would be misunderstood, Kitty scooped up the dazzling stones and poured them hastily into the tobacco pouch, which she thrust into Cuddy's hands. What she had heard was not the cry of a disordered brain. There was some clear reason for the horror in Hoxley's tones. What tragedy lay behind these wonderful prisms of color that the legitimate owner could not look upon them without being stirred in this manner? Take them into the study, urged Kitty. Wait, interposed Hawksley. I give one of the emeralds to you, Cuddy. They came out of hell, if you want to risk it. The other is for Miss Conover, with Mr. Hawksley's compliments. He was looking at Kitty now his face drawn, his eyes bloodshot. Don't be apprehensive. They bring evil only to men. With one in your possession you will be happy ever after, as the saying goes. Oh, they are mine to give, mine by right of inheritance. God knows I've paid for them. If I said Mr., began Kitty, her brain confused, her tongue clumsy, "'You haven't forgiven,' he interrupted. "'A thoroughbred like you to hold last night against me? "'Mister, after what we two have shared together, "'why didn't you leave me there to die?' "'Cuddy observed that the drama had resolved itself into two characters. "'He had been relegated to the scenes. "'He tiptoed toward his study door, "'and as he slipped inside he knew that Gethsemane was not an orchard.' but a condition of the mind. He tossed the pouch on his desk, eyed it ironically, and sat down. His, one of them, one of those marvelous emeralds, was his. He interlaced his fingers and rested his brow upon them. He was very tired. Kitty missed him only when she heard the latch snap. She was alone with Hawksley, and all her terror returned, not to touch him, not to console him, to stand staring at him like a dumb thing. I do forgive, Johnny, but your world and my world, those stains, the wretches hurt you. What? Where? Bewildered. The blood on your waist. Kitty looked down. That is not my blood, Johnny. It's yours. Mine? Johnny. Something in the way she said it. Mine? Trying to solve the riddle. Yes. It is where your cheek rested when I thought you were dead. The sense of misery, of oppression, of terror, all fell away miraculously, leaving only the flower of glory. She would be his plaything if he wanted her. Silence. Kitty, I came out of a dark world to find you. I loved you the moment I entered your kitchen that night. 
but I didn't know it. I loved you the night you brought the wallet. Still I did not understand. It was when I heard the lift door and knew you had gone forever that I understood. Loved you with all my heart, with all that poor old Stefani had fashioned out of muck and clay. If you held my head to your heart, if that is my blood there, do you, can you care a little? I can, and do care very much, Johnny. Her voice to his ears was like the G-string of the Amati. Will you go with me? Anywhere. But you are a prince of some great Russian house, Johnny, and I'm nobody. What am I, Kitty? Less than nobody, a homeless outcast with only you and Cuddy. An American? Well, when I'm that, it'll be different. I'll be somebody. God forgive me if I do not give it absolute loyalty, this new country. Never call me anything but Johnny. Johnny. Anywhere. Whatever he willed her to be. I'm a child, Kitty. I want to grow up, if I can, to be an American. Something like that ripping old thoroughbred yonder. Cuddy. Johnny wanted to be something like Cuddy. Johnny would have to grow up to be his own true self, for nobody could ever be like Cuddy. He was as high and far away from the average man as this apartment was from hers. Would he understand her attitude? Could she say anything until it would be too late for him to interfere? She was this man's woman. She would have her span of happiness, come ill, come good, even if it hurt Cuddy, whom she loved in another fashion. But for Johnny dropping through that trap, she might never have really known. Married Cuddy, and been happy. Happy until one or the other died, never gloriously, never furiously, but mildly happy perhaps understanding each other far better than Johnny and she would understand each other, the average woman's lot. But to give her heart, her mind, her body, in a whirlwind of emotions, absolute surrender, to know for once the highest state of exaltation, to love. All this tender exchange with a half a dozen feet between them, Kitty had not stirred from the far side of the tea-cart, and he had not opened his arms. She had given herself with magnificent abandon. For the present, that satisfied her instincts. As for him, he was not quite sure this miracle might not be a dream, and one false move might cause her to vanish. Johnny, who is Olga? The question was irrepressible. Perhaps it was the last shred of caution binding her. All of him, or none of him. There must be no other woman intervening. Hawksley stiffened in his chair. His hands closed convulsively and his eyes lost their brightness. Johnny? Kitty ran round the tea-cart. What is it? She knelt beside the chair, alarmed, for the horror had returned to his face. What did they do to you back there? She clasped one of his hands tensely in hers. In my dreams at night, he said, staring into space, I could run away from my pursuers. 
But I could not run away from my dreams. Torches and hobnailed boots. They trampled on her. And I, up there in the gallery with those damned emeralds in my hands. Oh, if I hadn't gone for them. If I hadn't thought of the extra comforts their sale would bring. There would have been time then, Kitty. I had all the other jewels in the pouch. Horses were ready for us to flee on, loyal servants ready to help us. But I thought of the drums, a few more worldly comforts, with hell forcing in the doors. I didn't tell her where I was going. When I came back, it was to see her die. They saw me and yelled. I ran away. I hadn't the courage to go down there and die with her. She thought I was in that hell pit. She went down there to die with me, and died horribly, alone. Oh, if only I could shut it out. Forget Olga, my tender young sister, Kitty, the last one of my race I could love. And I ran away like a yellow dog, like a yellow dog. I don't know where her grave is, and I could not seek it if I did. I dared not write Stefani, tell him I had seen Olga go down under Karlov's heels and then ran away, day by day day to feel those stones against my heart. Nothing is more terrible to a woman than the sight of a brave man weeping, for she knew that he was brave. The sudden recollection of the emeralds, a little more comfort for himself and sister if they were permitted to escape. Not a cowardly instinct, not even a greedy one, a normal desire to fortify them additionally against an unknown future, and he had surrendered to it impulsively without explaining to Olga where he was going. Johnny, Johnny, you mustn't! She sprang up, seizing his head, and wildly kissing him. You mustn't! God understands, and Olga! Oh, you mustn't sob like that! You're tearing my heart to pieces! I ran away like a yellow dog! I didn't go down there and die with her! You didn't run away tonight when you offered your life for my liberty! Johnny, you mustn't! Under her tender ministrations, the sobs began to die away and soon resolved into little catching gasps. He was weak and spent from his injuries. Otherwise he would not have given way like this, discovered to her what she had not known before, that in every man, however strong and valiant he may be, there is a little child. It has been burning me up, Kitty. I know, I know. It's because you have a soul full of beautiful things, Johnny. God held you back from dying with Olga because he knew I needed you. You'll marry me, knowing I did this thing? Marry him. A door to some blinding radiance opened and she could not see for a little while. Marry him. What a miserable wretch she was to think he would want her otherwise. Johnny Two Hawks fiddling in front of the Metropolitan Opera House to fill a poor blind man's cup. Yes, Johnny. Now, yesterday's never were. For us there's nothing but tomorrow's. Out there, in the great country, where souls as well as bodies may stretch themselves, we'll start all over again. You'll be the cowman, and I'll be the kitchen wench. And as in the beginning, so it'll always be hereafter, I'll cook your bacon and eggs. She pulled his chair round and pushed it toward a window, dropped beside it and laid her cheek against his hand. Let us look at the stars, Johnny. They know. Kuroki 
having arrived with coffee and sandwiches, paused on the threshold, gazed, wheeled right about face, and returned to the kitchen. By and by, Kitty looked up into Hawksley's face. He was asleep. She got up carefully, lightly kissed the top of his head, the old wound, and crossed to Cuddy's door. She must tell dear old Cuddy of the wonderful happiness that was going to be hers. She opened the study door, but did not enter at once. Asleep on his arms. Why, he hadn't even opened that Alababa's bag. Tired out. Done in, as Johnny Two Hawks called it, in his English fashion. She waited, but as he did not stir, she approached with noiseless step. The light poured full upon his head. How gray he was! A boundless pity surged over her that this tender, valiant knight should have missed what first her mother had known, now she herself, requited love. To have everything in the world without that was to have nothing. She would not wake him. She would let him sleep until Captain Harrison came. Lightly she touched the gray head with her lips and stole from the study. Oh, Molly, Molly, Cuddy whispered into his rigid fingers. And so they were married, in the apartment, at the top of the world, on a May night, thick with stars. It was not a wedding. It was a marriage. The world never knew, because it was none of the world's business. Who was Kitty Conover? A nobody. Who was John Hawksley? Something to be. Out of the storm, into the calm, which is something of a reversal. Generally, in love affairs, happiness is found in the approach to the marriage contract. The disillusions come afterward. It was therefore logical that Kitty and her lover should be happy, as they had run the gamut of test and fire beforehand. The young people were to leave for the west soon after the supper for three. At midnight, Cuddy's ship would be boring down the bay. Did Kitty regret, even a little, the rice and old shoes, the bridesmaids and cake, so dear to the female of the species? She did not. Did she think occasionally of the splendor of the title that was hers? She did. To her mind, Mrs. John Hoxley was incomparably above and beyond anything in that Bible of autocracy, the Almanac de Gotha. After supper, Cuddy brought in the old Amati. Play, he said, lighting his pipe. So Hoxley played, played as he had never played before and perhaps as he would never play again. We reached Zenith sometimes, but we never stay there. But he was not playing to Cuddy. Slight blue eyes, two books with endless pages, the soul of this wife of his. He had come through. The miracle had been accomplished. Love. Kitty smiled and smiled, the doors of her soul thrown wide to absorb this magic message. Love. Cuddy smoked on, with his eyes closed. He heard it, too. Love. Well, he said, sighing, I see innovations out there in Montana. The roundup will be different. 
The pied fiddler of Bar K will stand in the corral and fiddle, and the bossies will come galloping in two by two. And a few jackrabbits. He laughed. John, the Amati is yours conditionally. If, after one year, it is not reclaimed, it becomes yours automatically. My wedding present. Remember, next winter, if God wills, you'll come and visit me. As if we could forget, cried Kitty, embracing Cuddy, who accepted the embrace stoically. I'll be needing clothes, and Johnny will have to have his hair cut. Oh, Cuddy, I'm so foolishly happy. Time we started for the choo-choo. Timetables have no souls. But, Lord, what a racket we've had. Well, rather, from Hawksley. Bo, listen to me. Out there you must remember that bally and ripping and rather are premeditated insults. Gee whiz, but I'd like a look-see when you say to your rough and readies, bally rotten weather, what? They'll shoot you up. More banner, which fooled none of the three, as each understood the other perfectly. The hour of separation was at hand, and they were fortifying their courage. Funny old top, was Hawksley's comment as they stood before the train gate. Three months gone, we were strangers. And now, began Kitty, with hoops of steel, interrupted Kitty, you must write, Cuddy, and Johnny and I will be prompt. You'll get one from the Azores. Train going west. Good luck, children. Cuddy pressed Hawksley's hand and pecked at Kitty's cheek. Shank go with you to the car. Kuroki is waiting. Goodbye. The red cap seized the luggage, and Hawksley and his bride followed them through the gate. Because he was tall, Cuddy could see them until they reached the bumper. Funny old world, for a fact. Next time they met, the wounds would be healed. Hawksley's head and old Cuddy's heart. Queer how he felt his fifty-two. He began to recognize one of the truths that had passed by. One did not sense age if one ran with the familiar pack. But for an old-timer to jog along for a few weeks with youth, that was it. The youth of these two had knocked his conceit into a cocked hat. Poor dear old Cuddy, said Kitty. Old thoroughbred, said Hawksley. And there you were relegated to the bracket where the family kept the kaleidoscope, the seashell, and the album. His children, though, from now on, he would have that interest in life. The blessed infant, Molly's girl, taking a sunbonnet where she might have worn a tiara, and that boy, stepping down from the pomp of palaces to the dusty ranges of Bar K, an American citizen. It was more than funny, this old top. It was stark raving mad. Well, he had one of the drums. It reposed in his wallet. Another queer thing. He could not work up a bit of the old enthusiasm. It was only a green stone. One of the finest examples of the emerald known, and he could not conjure up the panorama of murder and loot behind it. Possibly because he was no longer detached. The stone had entered his own life, and touched it with tragedy. For it was tragedy to be fifty-two and to realize it. Thus, whenever he took out the emerald, he found his imagination walled in. Besides, it was a kind of magic mirror. He saw always his own tentative villainy. He was not quite the honest man he had once been. 
But what was happening down the line there? The passengers were making way for someone. Kitty! And racing back to the gate. She did not pause until she stood in front of him, breathless. Forget something? he asked, awkwardly. Uh hm. Suddenly she threw her arms around his neck and kissed him. If only the three of us could be always together. Take care of yourself. Johnny and I need you. Then she caught his hand, gave it a pressure, and was off again. Cuddy stood there, staring blindly in her direction. Old Stefani Gregor, sacrifice. By and by he became conscious of something warm and hard in his palm. He looked down. A green stone. Green as the turban of a Mecca pilgrim. Green as the eye of a black panther in the thicket. He dropped the emerald into a vest pocket and fumbled round for his pipe. Always his mental crutch. He lit it and marched out of the station into the night, chuckling sardonically. For the second time the thought occurred to him. Of all his earthly possessions he would carry into the beyond. A chuckle. Molly, then Kitty, but the drums of jeopardy were his. End of chapter 33 The End of the Drums of Jeopardy